Hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name, as always, is Shane Andrasani. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by a longtime friend and colleague, Karen Hum, who, as you can tell, is making me laugh already. <laughs> so Karen is a lecturer in emergency and critical care here at the Queen Mother Hospital for Animals and the co-director of the transfusion <laughs> service here. So thanks very much for joining me today, Karen. Um, and we're going to promise the delegates not to laugh, delegates, audience, not to laugh too much, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so today, Karen, I want to uh, talk about transfusion medicine. And obviously, this is um, a big topic, and we could talk about it for a very long time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Anecdotally, I actually recently had to give a one-hour webinar on transfusion medicine. I tried to translate a six-hour day of lectures into oh, no. one hour, and it was like, what do you talk about? Um, so I've tried to pick out some of the major points or themes to focus on, and we'll see um, how we get on. What I wanted to do was to start by discussing a little bit about pet blood banks in general and mm-hmm. obviously our transfusion service here. And then we'll move on and talk a little bit more about the kind of clinical medicine aspects. So um, I guess we're better to start than to ask if you could please essentially sum up for us what we mean by transfusion medicine. Okay. Um, transfusion medicine is the branch of medicine looking at transfusing any blood products, basically. Um, and when we think of blood products, probably the first thing that pops into everyone's mind is whole blood. But actually, we often break down our whole blood into lots of different products. There's loads of products available. Um, and so um, it's the branch looking at all of those different things. Okay, so basically the giving of blood products. Yeah, bl- deciding when to give, um, what to give, and how to actually give it, okay, I guess. So everything around it. Yeah, yes. Cool. Um, and so there are some pet blood banks, right? And in um, the UK we have the imaginatively called The Pet Blood Bank, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is a charity. And do you know roughly how many blood banks there are in other countries at all? I don't. Um, there are a few societies that they can belong to, um, but an absolute number, no, I don't know. There's probably about 10 or so commercial ones that I know of in the USA. Mm-hmm. And in the USA, they also have a lot of universities that have their own private blood banks. So blood banks tend to fall into, or animal blood banks tend to fall into two groups. So commercial groups where they sell blood, like Pet Blood Bank, but as you say, that is a charity. They don't make any profit on that. Mm. So it's a really great, um, a great company. And then... Um, there are also universities in general um, that have their own private blood banks. And so in, in this country, at least, those don't have to be registered So um, with the VMD. So we actually don't know um, how many of them there are. But in the US and, say, the UK, they tend to fall in those two groups. I know there's um, Melbourne have one, but actually outside the US and the UK, mm. I don't really know that much about them. But we probably are actually quite a lot, varying in size from quite small to really big. And... Um I'm going off tangent here, but I do that all the time. Um, So I guess our understanding is that if you're a university or a private referral centre and Mm. you have a transfusion service, Mm -hmm. presumably you need to be licensed in some way before you could start selling products that you have in-house to external people, right? Yes. Because I know that we... You know, we, I don't know how often it happens nowadays, but certainly we used to get calls from people saying, oh, can you send us some blood or something? Mm. So we used to say, well, we're not actually allowed. Yeah, absolutely. To so to sell blood, you need to be licensed, but actually to provide blood to your own practice, you don't have to be. Okay. So it's, it's to do with the ability to sell blood. And there are only two um, blood banks that can do that in the UK, and by far the biggest is the Pet Blood Bank. Okay, and I wonder actually, um, I suppose, that, I wonder if the, the details in the word selling in a way, mm. I guess, you know, we sometimes give people drugs and then they reimburse them there's no financial transaction and I wonder whether you could say well you can get a unit of cells but you have to get one back for us or thing. I don't know I'm going off on a tangent but um, 
I think, again, because it has to be pro it's a processed product that we're actually making on site. It's not, I think it's slightly different to giving a product that we have bought that is standardised and we can exchange for exactly the same product. Oh, okay. Whereas I think because we are actually processing and creating the product, that's the difference. Yeah, and I guess the other issue you have there is, um, you know, resource availability, right? That, Absolutely. I mean, you'll know a lot better than me about how, um, how often we're running short. But, yeah. um, but I guess having enough to be able to actually give them out anyway is a is a practical issue as well. Yes. Okay, so blood banks basically store blood products and make them available for clinical use. Mm -hmm. um, we sort of touched on it already, but can you please explain kind of what we mean by blood products, what blood products are available, and again, why we actually go through the trouble of splitting whole blood into blood products? Okay, so yeah, blood products are any products that are created from blood. Um, and um, what you can do is you take your whole unit of blood and then you can split that what we do here is we spin it in a massive centrifuge and um create um split it up into packed red cells so just the cells um at the bottom it's just like when you spin a pcv tube the cells go to the bottom you can split that off from the um plasma that comes to the top and we leave it there but actually um pet blood bank go further they split off they can create cryoprecipitate mm. um, and they sell that as well and then in other countries um in america there are other products you can get as well from the um from the whole blood and in humans they like will create loads of different products and that are, the reason for this is to try and only give what you need because as i said um or just alluded to a moment ago blood products are inherently variable and so can create reactions in the recipient so to try and minimize the risk of the reactions we only give what is necessary and that for, will hopefully decrease the risk of reactions um and so in humans like i say they've they've narrowed it right down they can give specific factors if a you know a patient is a haemophiliac they will only get the, the mm. factor they need for example and actually although i say they're derived from blood blood products actually also cover um recombinant factors so produced factors that have actually not and have actually seen a person they've not come from a donation mm. and then i suppose it's also important to remember as well that we use products in dogs and cats sometimes that are derived from human donations like human albumin solution that's a that's a blood product or mm. um ivgg for example and i guess um there's a, there's an efficiency issue as well right so aside, aside from the risk of reaction mm -hmm. basically saying well what am i trying to do here and how's the best way to do it so i guess the spinning these products is partly about minimizing risk it's partly about maximizing efficiency yeah maximizing use definitely yeah. of that donation you're completely right um Okay, cool. And I guess the question that we, we await to see is, well, I mean, in, in both sectors, really, because um, in, in human transfusion medicine, as you know, there is this whole kind of constant research into the use of specific factors mm -hmm. and things come in and go away again and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And I guess um, we wait to see what happens in the veterinary context um, in that respect. Because do we know if there are people that are actually offering recombinant canine factor or something or other not that i'm aware of um but um as i say i suppose if you had um a dog that was factor eight deficient then cryoprecipitate would probably be your yeah. your best option so there are we're, we're getting there but yeah we don't have and in terms of recombinant stuff not that i'm aware of and certainly nothing that i know is commercially available and um we'll talk about our service here in a minute but um you mentioned that the pet blood bank do produce cryoprecipitate and, mm -hmm. and we don't mm -hmm. if i remember rightly we it's not that we can't it's just that i guess we don't perceive there's adequate demand or? we don't have enough demand at the moment yeah and um we although 
um, vulnerable advanced factors of vulnerable advanced diseases obviously out there, we um, don't see it that much. Mm. And I suppose the big call for cryoprecipitate would actually be in elective procedures. Mm. That's one of the, the big reasons when we, I suppose you'd probably really want it. So, you know, have, you have a vulnerable advanced dog and you want to, say, neuter it or do a cruciate or something, then mm. you can give that in advance. And um, so we could do it. But, yeah, we, I oh, can't remember the last I'm... time we've required it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to open this now because. But I do remember um, having being asked by somebody for advice about a, a von Willebrand deficient dog mm. that was um, pregnant, and they were so wondering about the whole parturition and the need for C-section and, and how to try and make that as safe as possible, and even just parturition itself. And mm. it was a very interesting question. But again, it's not really the sort of thing that you could. Um, look up a study or something and say well look here's some evidence in any way it was very much thinking on your feet about what you thought was the best thing to do but mm-hmm. part of the question was well we need to get some cryoprecipitate and, and where could we do that from and make mm-hmm. sure you have it in advance of needing it and so on mm-hmm. um if we did find the need for using it in a patient is this something that we could just generate one day here for one-off use or would we sort of get get it from the pet blood bank instead I, well, basically, there are there are criteria you like instructions. I mm. suppose there's an instruction manual about how to produce it. So I guess we probably could do it. Mm. Um, I've never really yeah, thought, never, never had to think about it. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I, mean, I guess we could. We've, we've got we've had. got the we've got the possibility to do it if we need to. Yeah. But I guess it's whether we need it in a planned sense or in an acute demand yeah, sense. And yeah. if it was an acute demand, it might be easier just to buy the product seen as it is available. And no. like I say, I think, I think the Pet Blood Bank is a fantastic resource there, and it's so great that it's there for people in practice now. You know, yeah. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was a bit different story. Definitely. Um, yeah. Because the other thing that, that we, we should touch on, I suppose, in that respect is what one of the things that I'm very kind of keen on is the fact that... Um, that people don't just have access to these products mm. without being very well educated in their use, right? Mm. For some of the reasons that we've said already. And I suppose there's one thing to make products available. There's another thing to kind of quality control their use in a way, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think it's a difficult balance because you can't necessarily say, well, we'll only give you these products if we think you're using them sensibly. Mm. Just and like I'm, anything, like antibiotics, you know, we've got to rely on people keeping themselves informed and keeping themselves um, up to date on appropriate um, use of those products. So, yeah, in the same way, you don't have to pass a knowledge test before you get your fluoroquinolone. Yeah. Um, but we hope that people are using them appropriately. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, the, um, the, the stakes with the blood products are a tad higher, both financially because mm. obviously it costs more to the client mm. to use those products. And secondly, I'm really not going to go on this ethical conversation, mm. but given where those products have come from, no, I, think I it's guess a th- I get a little bit more twitchy if one, if one doesn't use those products sensibly. No, I we, think get, we get twitchy right. about the antibiotics too, but that's yeah. another a conversation. Different, a different <laughs> reason, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've got, we've got big reasons to be worried in different ways. And I think, I think in a way you can't avoid the ethical issues with a um, transfusion service when you're relying on animals to donate blood. And I've certainly heard it said, and I think it's true, that you can't necessarily definitely call them donors because they have volunteered to give mm. that that um that product um so let's talk about something a little bit more kind of factual in a way in that um are there kind of criteria that that not just we use for our donors but also that um that other blood banks are there sort of standardized criteria that are universally accepted or is there some variation I think there were fairly well-defined criteria. So um, there was a paper published, oh, I don't know, probably about um, five or six years ago now in JVIM, which talked about criteria for 
testing animals in terms of um, diseases for risk of disease transmission. So there's mm. certainly guidelines out there from that point of view. Another generally accepted guidelines and I suppose and this comes back to my what I really want to um, maintain is from the donor's point of view is trying to make sure that we don't ever cause any harm to them Mm. they're our priority in terms of the transfusion medicine service making sure nothing happens that's uh, a problem for them Um, and so um, our first probably thing is that they are not stressed by the process and that they often quite enjoy the process. So we have quite a few Labradors that very much enjoy the process. They come in, they lie down, great, then they get a bowl of food, great. Um, so it's, I think they're actually really quite pleased by the whole thing. Um, but, um, but, yeah, it's trying to um, make sure we don't do any harm to them. Um, And like I say, that involves, one, making sure they don't get stressed by it, but two, making sure they're healthy enough to be able to donate, that we don't do them any harm. We know that animals can donate without having any problem if they are clinically well and healthy. So to make sure they are, we generally have animals that are between one and eight years old to risk minimize the risk of say occult disease that we we can't find um we perform a biochemistry and hematology every year to just try and pick up any issues there at all um we perform a full physical exam and take a good history uh, before every donation as well um and those are all just things to make sure we don't miss anything that's Mm. unhealthy with that animal so that by donating they don't do anything wrong Um, we don't do anything wrong to them and then also we worry from the flip point that we don't um, transmit anything bad to our recipients from the donors so we will do um, disease checks for our cats every time they donate we check FELV and FIV status we check mycoplasma status once yearly we also um, check that we make sure that animals have never been abroad um, because of the risk of bloodborne pathogens in that um, from Europe um, etc. And in that context, are, are people in other countries doing a wider infection screen or a different? So yeah, like I say, that's, that was the Javen paper was quite interesting, the one I discussed before, because that's obviously got all the risk of transmissible diseases in the USA, and you yeah. can see how much more careful they have to be. Um, I should us. say um, for people that aren't down with the lingo that um, Javen is the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine. Thank you. That's all right. Because <laughs> uh, we, we just use that like all the time, don't we? Yeah. But, um, people may not be clear. Um, and then there are other things related to weight as well, I think. Is that so right? you need our donors, our dog donors need to be over 25 kilos um, because we use human blood banks. And so any smaller than that, they wouldn't be able to donate a full unit. And then it wouldn't be, there'd be too much anticoagulant in there. Cat donors, we like them to be fairly big so that they can, we actually don't use um, human blood banks because obviously there'd be too, far too much anticoagulant in there. Mm. Um, but we want them to be fairly big so that they can actually donate a useful amount of blood so we usually say over about five kilos and in both those situations they need to be over that weight and in normal body condition score not over that weight because they're obese which is yes that's an important thing isn't it it's it's a sort of ideal healthy weight weight. rather than yes absolutely um i guess the other thing i wanted to to mention you reminded me there really was um i'm going to talk ask you in a little bit about um feline blood donors donating conscious Mm -hmm. um but before we do that um what's the situation in terms of stored feline blood products so they're available in the US but not in the UK currently um, because of a lack of a decent closed system and I think that's something we're really working on trying to get hold of a a good closed system and we're we're discussing with some manufacturers to try and get that sorted but it's still work in progress at the moment and um, we can't actually use we can't import the stuff that they use in America or? So they do they they store them but they actually use open systems and we're a little bit worried about um, the risks associated with that Um, 
particularly as you say, as we use more conscious donors. Um, but um, but I think in general that's been a concern for us using stored blood that wasn't collected in a closed system. Okay, cool. Um, let's actually talk about the use of conscious feline donors, mm-hmm. and then I'll ask you to give us a little bit of a background about our service here. But I know that um, we and the Pet Blood Bank, I think, we, we've certainly been making some progress, I think, with actually using conscious feline donors. Mm. So just to kind of, I guess, um, fill in people that aren't familiar, for a very long time it was said that you would that you had to sedate feline donors mm-hmm. to be used, right? And that's yeah. what we used to do, and that's what pretty much everyone used to do, I think, yeah. that was doing it. Um, and then there's been a sort of move towards saying, well, actually, is that completely necessary? And yeah. so I guess if you could fill us in a bit about what's going on in that department, as it were, in that area, that would be great. Well, as you say, traditionally, um, we always used to sedate our donors. And um, we... Uh, um, when the nurse prior to um, the nurse Charlotte who works with us currently um, prior to her there was a nurse called Robin Taylor who um, kind of pioneered trying to um, do conscious donations in the RVC and we um, it was a it was a big change for us but actually um, now over 50% of our donations as feline donations are done really, this way yeah 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 wow. it's, and it's increasing wow. you know Charlotte's taken over from robin and has continued to expand the number of cats that wow. we're managed to do conscious donations of and i think for me donor welfare is really really important mm. and um what i think we want to want to do is um try and make sure this is maximized and i think for some cats maybe conscious donation isn't as good for them from a welfare point of view as sedated donation but um it's something we're looking into we're doing a few studies to try and um work out whether that's how it's um, changed our service and we think it's probably changed it for the better but we're trying to do some look at some absolute measures there to see about that Um, and again one of the points I guess I wanted to raise um, always with an eye on you know what's going out going on in practice Mm. and and trying to be kind of real and realistic for people Um, what we're not saying is because obviously because we don't store feline blood products and yep. people in practice can't ring up the pet blood bank in the UK and say, mm. can we have some feline products? If they're going to get cat blood, it's usually in the form of a whole blood donation from mm. a staff cat or, yep. you know, etc. We're not saying, I don't think, that this cat that you've just got and you're doing something that you're not necessarily very familiar with, mm. that we are now recommending, well, actually, you can try conscious donation, right? Or, or are we? Because no, I guess from my I point of view, that, that worries me. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think, you know, we... Um the nurses that are doing this, and it is a nurse-led program, there's always a vet um, supervising, but the, the bleeding is primarily done by nurses, uh, incredibly experienced and mm. do this you know, really frequently. I've become very confident. We use people who are very... Um, the patient care assistants also are fantastic and really good at handling these cats. Um, and I've learned to do the process, but I think, as you say, if this is the first time, or even if it's the fifth or sixth, but you're doing one donation maybe every year or so, to say, right, I'm definitely going to do this conscious from now on is a would be a big step to do mm. um and so i think we probably need to you need to be quite experienced and quite confident in what you're doing before you attempt this and and it's not um and obviously we're also using emla cream etc we're not just um 
cracking on um, with no analgesics at all. Right, so let me do my thing. Emla cream. <laughs> eutetic mixture of local anaesthetics. Um, <laughs> eutetic <a> mixture. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, a, um, a local anaesthetic Other brands cream. are not available? I have no think. idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you can get topical lidocaine, xylocaine, other things, but we, but Emla cream is, uh, is probably the most widely used in the veterinary world. Um, because I think in that point, there's the welfare of the patient, mm. right? And then there's also the fact that, well, if that's your only donor you've got and you try and do it conscious, mm. obviously it's a huge compromise to the, the welfare of the patient if they get very stressed, a, but also you donor. might lose your yeah. donor, right? And then yeah. you don't have a donor anymore. So yeah. for lots of reasons, I think it's just about thinking very sensibly about whether actually we might be making progress with it here and, and I don't know what the pet blood bank is doing in that respect. They did a massive room. study into it. Um, I know, um, and but I don't, I don't know whether they're able to go to the next step of being able to provide because it's such a, I think, feline donation. You've got to be um, so much more... Um, it's harder to get hold of the donors. You know, we need cats that are definitely happy, as I say, to, to donate, and we think dogs are probably a lot more compliant. Probably cats are far too intelligent. Um, yeah. And they're, um, they're maybe not so willing to, um, to sit still for such a long length of time, etc. Yeah, et definitely. Um, Okay, and then could you give us some, um, you know, like a, a sort of brief history of our, of our service here? I mean, obviously, when uh, when did I first set yeah. my feet in the QMH? Um, you know, for the 12, 13, the 12, 12 years, not quite, <laughs> but nearly. Um, so about 12 years ago. And then obviously you came a few years later at Dimes mm. and things have moved on a lot, right? Mm. And, and our use of blood products has grown and all that kind of stuff. So I guess if you could just give us a, a sort of summary oversight of our transfusion service here, that would be great. So um, it used to be that you couldn't store blood products legally. And then I think it was um, it was about 2002 the Transfusion Medicine Service was set up here. It was when it became legal to store blood products. And um, it, the service started off with Amanda Bogue and Gillian Gibson, who started the service along with a few Some nurses. I know, <laughs> I know. Um, and um, it's slowly, slowly grown and steadily grown over the... the the years and now we transfuse about um we, yeah about we do about 60 feline transfusions and about 200 canine transfusions a year so it's actually quite big now mm. um it's run as i say um the service day-to-day -day is run by charlotte who is a really skilled and very very um excellent nurse she's brilliant she's amazing we'll, with the animals we'll have to um we'll have to get her to listen to this otherwise she'll, <laughs> not, she'll not know about you singing her praises publicly oh, i think she knows i think she's pretty good um yeah but both technically and um, with the animals, she's, she's fantastic. Um, and the vets involved who oversee are myself, Dan Chan, and Lindsay Kelly Gregory. And so between us, we run this transfusion medicine service, which, like I say, I'm, I'm really proud of, actually. I think it's a really important part of the RVC. So there's two things there, actually. One is um, to just let people know about, I guess, our state of products in terms of what we have. Because mm. I guess from my mind... The red cells we generally have enough, mm. but that might be the one that may become an issue. The mm. plasma side of things, we usually have plenty. Is that, mm -hmm. is that right? Yes. Yeah. And, and then I guess the, um, the other thing that's been interesting, I suppose, is to see the sort of parallel growth of the ECC service here mm. and the transfusion medicine service. Yeah. And we won't get into the politics of any of that kind of stuff, but, but more about the fact that I wonder how the ECC service would have grown had transfusion 
being able to actually store those products and stuff hadn't become available mm. because you know we 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 are i guess you're going to tell me the stats maybe but we presumably are the service that calls on them the most still or yes yes i think we are and um because even if say a a patient may have a primarily like a cat comes in with a fractured pelvis you'll say that's orthopedics it is but often if it ends up needing a transfusion it's very sick when it presents um or sick after the um procedure to repair its pelvis in which case ecc gets involved so yeah we're really and they're in the icu and they're all animals that have a transfusion are monitored really closely in the icu so they they you know hand in hand these two services and i think they've grown together definitely and um, again, I you know uh, don't want to open another can of worms, but I always like to, to probe these things a little mm. bit. That, you know, we, we I think we have talked before about when we were saying before about the that the use of blood products needs to be rational, right? Yes, for the reasons that we've already talked about. Yeah, um, and then we've always said, well, we don't really have a uh, a person that makes a final decision, right? Mm. There's no sort of um, a committee that says yes, you can use a blood product in that patient, or no, you can't. Yes, right? and Again, I think, putting it bluntly, I suppose, if a clinician on a service wants to use a blood product, hmm. they can do that, right? We, we, we can have an input, we can discuss together, hmm. collegiately, and hmm. all that stuff. But basically, we don't have... I'm not saying we should, but I'm just asking hmm. the question. Really. There is no, there's no person that really has right of veto or not? Um, I don't think it's ever got to that point, actually. I think we've... Um, so as I say, there's there's CVETs and transfusion medicine service, um, and like we oversee the donation process and monitor um, monitor the health of our donors. But also, yeah, we we advise on the actual transfusion um, process, and I think we've had some fairly long chats with people about cases but in general i think we've managed to come to an agreement you mm. know i don't think there's ever been a well i don't think you should do this and anyone's saying well i'm going to i don't yeah, think i've ever yeah. had that and um, and we won't talk about it here because i think you know this podcast is not the place really but um th- there are obviously the whole there's a whole another kind of can of worms about using these products rationally or in a justified way based on that patient's prognosis and all that kind of stuff but i think we're, we're not going to open that kind of worms now otherwise i think we could talk about that oh, we can talk about it for ages and again it comes back to as you're saying the, the the use of the product and the fact that animal is donating it but um but yeah when i've looked back and i've done this a couple of times um looked back at what percentage of our recipients go on to leave the hospital it's actually quite high hmm. It is quite high, and I think that's something I think we like to monitor to make sure that we are, you know, making the most of our and making, as you say, rational and sensible decisions about our blood. Yeah, products. and I think I think it's hugely complicated because you know, just in what you've just said now, you said we'll leave the hospital, mm. and it's like, well, is that our outcome measure mm. that they left the hospital, yeah. even if then five days later they were euthanized? Yeah, do you know absolutely. what I mean? So we, we have to. There's all kinds of questions, but like, like I think if we go down that road, we're not going to talk about the other, <laughs> the more simple stuff that I wanted to cover today. So let's let, let's park all of that aside for now and. Um, Let's move on and talk about the actual sort of medicine aspects of, mm-hmm. of transfusions. And so I guess I wanted to just focus on the two main indications, um, and so namely anemia and spontaneous bleeding. Um, so you get to sit back a little bit here, and I'll just <laughs> give a little bit of a summary about the, what anemia, the problem is. But basically it's that we have inadequate circulating hemoglobin, and as we know, hemoglobin is you know hugely important in terms of oxygen-carrying capacity, And so not having enough hemoglobin means we don't have enough oxygen-carrying capacity. And this can potentially result in a compromise in the amount of oxygen that's actually delivered to the tissues. And oxygen, as we all know, is kind of important for 
normal cellular processes. So with that said, then it may be that we want to help a patient out by basically saying, well, we think you need extra oxygen carrying capacity. Mm -hmm. And we usually achieve that by transfusing red blood cells. Now, in the UK, at least, there is another option, which is giving them rather than a whole red blood cell, if you like, it's giving them the hemoglobin component. And we do have this product um, called oxyglobin. And again, I, I have no qualms actually mentioning that name because it has been the only product available to us for, for quite a long time. And it went away for a while and it's come back now. Um, and that's based on kind of polymerized bovine hemoglobin. But I thought rather than talk about that product today here, that's not really the, the focus of what I want to do. Um, but with all of that background said, I wondered if you could explain to the listeners then how we go about deciding that that patient that's in front of us um, actually needs a red cell transfusion. And so what are the things that we take into account when making that decision to say, actually, I think I need to transfuse you? Mm. So if you're thinking from a red cell point of view... Um so presumably they're anemic, um, otherwise we wouldn't be considering it probably. Um, but we need to assess that individual patient and their response to their anemia. So we'll, you know, firstly um, we'll do a very good clinical examination. We'll look at their heart rate, their respiratory rate, their mentation, um, their ability to ambulate, um, and just try and work out how how much they are, um, how well they're dealing with their anemia, I guess. Um, we can also get clues from maybe the history or our suspected underlying cause of the anemia as to how well they're going to deal with it. For example, animals with a chronic anemia are going to be coping much better than mm. an animal with an acute drop in their PCV. Um, and also that would probably let us inform us as to where, how likely we are to want to transfuse as well. So, for example, an animal with immune-mediated hemolytic anemia are really marked undergoing marked hemolysis, we can suspect that they are going to continue losing um, red, um, oxygen carrying capacity, um, red cells, and therefore they are probably, even if they are just about coping, they're probably not going to be coping in, say, six hours, 12 hours' time, for example. Um, so if you're considering it and it's, you know, midday, then perhaps it's fine to start now because they're likely to carry on. Even mm. if you're starting with your immunosuppressive treatment, they are still going to carry on hemolyzing for a set period of time. Um, so um, it's taking the whole package in. The animal, their clin the animal and how they're presenting to you and their disease process and thinking about all of those things together to decide whether or not they, they need a um, transfusion. And so it's interesting because we, we were sort of uh, laughing, talking about it before we started, and you actually haven't mentioned it, which is really interesting to me. Um, well, what about the actual PCV or the hematocrit of the patient? Because like, to me it's great that that's not the first thing that came out of your mouth in a way because it's sort of like... Well, actually, we did say they had to be anemic. That's true, that's true. <laughs> um, because that's the sort of message that we've been trying to convey, right, and mm. it's not just us but in, in human medicine as well this whole question about whether there is a hemoglobin level or a, a transfusion level trigger that, that triggers it and mm. i guess what you've just said is that well there is a trigger but it's a multifactorial trigger yes and that actual pcv is just one part of the yeah, trigger absolutely like. i mean having said that you know if you've got probably a dog with a pcv less than 15 or a cat with a pcv less than 12 probably would you know benefit from a transfusion but you know it not they don't have to mm. so in some cases i've certainly seen dogs that walk in with chronic anemias with pcvs of 10 9 mm. and actually walking around looking not too bad they probably would benefit from a transfusion and they probably feel a bit better for it but they're coping okay and the same with cats um they can actually have remarkably low pcvs and still mm. look fairly mm. fairly well on it but we know with cats as well they're good at hiding their their disease process and how they're coping with it. Um, I guess in those cases, um, it's also about what you are planning to do, right? So if much, you're going to yeah. do something that might induce blood loss, then... 
Yes, and we certainly know if we put stresses on, like say we put an animal under general anaesthesia, say that cat we wanted to do a bone marrow on and it's got a PCV of 12 and it looks okay, but you know that once you anaesthetise it, you're going to cause um, suppression of the cardiovascular system and therefore um, decrease maybe oxygen delivery further, um, then actually they may not cope so well with that procedure. And... um uh, should we talk about it now? Let's talk about it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess um, I want to ask you a little bit about the kind of the more practical stuff. But before I do, I suppose the question is, let's park aside the cost of the transfusion. I'll ask mm-hmm. you about that right at the end. Let's park aside our thing that we talked about earlier about making best use of resource to, you know, so that we feel like we've justified in taking it from a donor and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Why, why would we think a little bit harder about giving a transfusion? Why didn't we just say, well, you know what, I'm not sure it'll help you or not, but why don't you just have it anyway? Like, are there, are there downsides to transfusing a patient that make us sort of say, well, it's not, you know, in the risk benefit, mm. is, there, is there risk? Yeah, absolutely. So any, uh, going back to what we said before, the, um, the bl- a blood product is not a standardised product. If I take one bottle of Sinulox off a shelf here and I take one off another practice, we can be very sure that those two bottles of Sinulox are very similar or the same, in fact. Whereas if I take blood from one dog, and I, even if I take a unit from that dog in six months' time, they'll probably be different, let alone that unit compared to another dog mm. that I've taken. So they're different products, which means that you can get reactions to them. Um, and those reactions... Um, can be either immunological, so reactions to actually, by the immune system, to things that are antigenic within the blood products, or they can be non-immunological, just as simple. We don't necessarily even always think of them as transfusion reactions, but they are. Mm. Um, so like volume overload. Um, and we definitely see that in cats quite a lot because they can often have occult or hidden cardiomyopathy, cardiac disease, and they can't cope with the extra volume, the large colloid um, transfusion you're giving them. And I think one of the uh, one of the things that, that in that non well I guess in both aspects really one mm. of the things that we obviously have talked about a lot in a lot in, in recent years and papers have been published and mm. all that stuff has been I guess things that might be harder for one in the clinic to appreciate in a way so people talk about effects on the immune system and immunomodulation mm. and mm-hmm. what you might be transmitting that are microscopic that may be doing harm and all those kinds of things yeah. Um, and certainly the sort of liberal use of transfusions in critical patients, for example, has moved from a time when maybe people were more liberal about transfusing to saying, well, actually, there are other concerns that might make us not transfuse that aren't your traditional kind of transfusion reactions. So I think it's, it's a sort of, um, there's a lot more to that story in the kind of in one end of it mm. that remains to be, to be clarified as well. Um, which, again, we, we won't really sort of harbour on. But I know that when I'm talking to people at CPD and stuff, I'm always kind of saying that, part of the risk is not just what you might have sort of traditionally thought of when Mm. we talked about these things, but actually there are these kind of more nuanced things that are under research and stuff that I guess we will, we will see. It is a complete tangent, but it was interesting because I I was, I was reading something yesterday that, um, that basically said that I think if I get these facts wrong a little bit, then I'm sure no one that's knows is listening anyway, but, um, but basically that they did some, they had some human war veterans Hmm. And then they tra- and they got transfused as part of their life-saving interventions post-military injury, and you know, 60 years later, they still found the DNA of the donors in those people. So it's a it's a complicated thing. Wow. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That was my response. Is like really, <laughs> there was there was a bar chart, and the Korean post-Korean War, there was 60 years post-Vietnam, there was a thing saying at 20 years, this is what we found. It was very interesting to me. But these are humans, obviously. It's got hmm. nothing to do with veterinary, but uh, I, I did find that interesting. So I guess it's sort of saying that. 
you know, there, there's stuff that probably occurs when you give these products from other animals to another animal or to another human hmm. that we maybe don't yet fully understand. But hmm. that's something that, you know, from a clinical point of view, we can talk about all day, but we need to treat the patient, right? Um, cool. So let's actually just um, get into a little bit of the kind of logistics and practical stuff about actually giving a red cell uh, transfusion. Again, without going into a huge amount of detail, because I guess somebody that's not familiar with all of this, we would not be expecting them to use this podcast as a way of learning how to give a transfusion, right? Yeah. So it's not really the purpose, but just to give them a kind of quick oversight of the things that they should think about if they're going to transfuse, would be great. Okay. Well, first of all, um, we type all our donors here and we'll type all our recipients. And so for dogs, that will be DA1 and for cats, that will be the AB system. Um, and we type them and we do match transfusions for cats, Probably people listening, a lot of people listening are aware that it's vital that you type both recipient and donor and make sure they are type matched. Um, for dogs, although it's not vital, we do know that DA1 is fairly immunogenic and therefore if you give DA1 positive blood to a DA1 negative dog, that um, those cells will be broken down more quickly. The DA1 negative dog will create antibodies and will break down those cells more quickly. So um, we like to, tra to perform type match transfusions if we can. Um, then uh, when we administer the blood, we use um, filters to make sure that if there's any microclots within the um, blood product um, or the that's in cells um, or whole blood, they are filtered out um, because you might not be able to see them, but they could still be there. Um, and we monitor the patient, the recipient, very, very closely. Um, it depends. We, what our system is, we TPR them, temperature pulse resp them every 15 minutes for the first hour and then hourly thereafter. And we also... But we're also monitoring them in terms of their mentation, looking for any vomiting, any diarrhea. We're looking at them because sometimes the reaction they can have can be actually a, a kind of urticaria or something like that. We look for pruritus, um, anything like that. If they urinate, we see the colour of the urine, those kind of things. And also... Um, we will. So I think if, if a transfusion is performed, we do it in the ICU so there's always someone around while, while they're being mm. monitored. And then you can get delayed transfusion reactions. So we will watch for any signs of that over the next um, few days. Excellent. So, um, so just to summarize really, typing, cats, absolutely, we recommend you do that every time. Mm -hmm. Dogs, you could get away with not doing it, but there are good reasons for doing it. Yes. I guess I often say to people that if you, for whatever reason, are unable to type or don't feel inclined to, mm. I suppose the bare minimum we're asking is take some blood pre-transfusion so that that patient can be typed later, right? Yes. Because otherwise yeah. we face this conundrum sometimes where we get patients that were giving an untyped transfusion and then we don't know what type they are. What type they are. Um, I, think, I think that's something that certainly... Uh, uh, pet blood bank struggled with a little bit as people just said, oh, well, we'll just give negative blood. Mm. And that's not necessarily a solution because the resources are not there for just giving negative blood. We have a, a finite number of donors and some great donors who are DA1 positive. And then you can't, you know, to just exclude all those donors means that we won't have the um, ability to transfuse all the animals we need to. Yeah, and, and in-house typing is simple and very accessible nowadays, right? Yeah. So I guess if yeah. you, um, you know, we would encourage people to do that. Um, you know what, I'm not going to talk about cross-matching because, again, uh, yeah, let's just not. Let's just say the word cross-matching. Yeah, do it if they have had a transfusion over four <laughs> days ago, done. Yeah, leave it out there. <laughs> and people, can, people can email or look it up. Um, because I wanted to move on, and actually you're very careful when you're answering then to just say DEA1, DEA1, <laughs> DEA1, right? 
Whereas if I'd asked you this question a month ago, I don't know, when you read the paper, you might have been saying DA 1.1, yeah. right? Um, which is very good. You change your lingo very quickly, which is great. It's been hard work, actually. It's <laughs> DA 1. You didn't Stop. get it wrong at all. Great. So, so the listeners are probably thinking, what are they banging on about? So let's, um, let's take a step back here and say that we used to um, say that canine blood types, so the DEA system, which is dog erythrocyte antigen, is one of other systems, but far and away the one that's used the most. Mm -hmm. And we used to say that basically dogs had DEA 1.1, DEA 1.2, there may or may not have been a DEA 1.3, and then there was a DEA 3, a DEA 4, a DEA 5, a DEA 7, I think. Well, that's setting done, but we used to always say, well, clinically we type for DEA 1.1 because that's supposed to be the one that we should worry about the most and it's the one that we can actually type for and that's what we've always said we were doing, right? It's, but, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the most immunogenic. So you can type for the other ones and they do that in the States and sometimes they will only use DEA 4 um, donors, but um, a DEA 1.1, as you said, was thought to be the most immunogenic and that's why we, we type for that. what we used to do, right? Mm. So... Um, there was a paper published recently in February, no, in, in April, March, April, actually. March, April, March, April, um, in the Journal of Veterinary <laughs> Internal Medicine in Javen <laughs> um, about dog erythrocyte antigens and potentially how we should be uh, amending how we refer to dog blood types. And I guess I'm going to ask you to fill us in a little bit more <laughs> about what that paper said. And therefore, why you sent the email you did quite recently. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we um, there was a study done. And what they did was, as you say, we've been... Previously, we thought about DA 1.1 and DA 1.2 as two different blood groups and that dogs could be positive for one or the other, but not both. Um, and actually, when they, they did some study where they looked for... Um, they did flow cytometry on DA 1.1 blood and DA 1.2 blood and um, showed that actually what they think is that they both had the same antigen just expressed at a different level. So DA 1.2 dogs didn't have, seem to have quite so much of the antigen as DA 1.1 dogs. But actually... They did actually, if you looked at the dogs that have been typed DA 1.1 positive, there was actually quite a range for there as well. So they decided that probably it's all just one blood group. It's just with one antigen on the red cell surface. That's all of a blood group is, an antigen on the red cell surface. Mm. And um, that that antigen was being expressed at different kind of levels in different dogs, but they think it's all one blood group. That's the thinking from it. Okay, so um, so as a result of that, what have we done? So they've said scrap 1.1, scrap 1.2. They're all just DA 1. DA 1. And then uh, from the point of view of somebody in a clinic that's typing dogs now, hmm. are we saying basically use the same typing? Because I, I think that paper, they used uh, one particular type of typing system, in-house typing system. But it's the sort of most... They use the Alvedia system, right. but actually they did cross-link cross it to a, a couple of other things. But yeah, they use the Alvedia system, um, which is the most commonly used one. And um, what you used to get was... Um, it's exactly the same kit as it always has. It now says DA1 on it rather than DA1.1. That's all that's changed on it. Yeah. And... Um, they talk about weak positives and, and um, strong positives. And there's, there's more information in that paper. It's worth, if you're interested in transfusion medicine, it's really worth a read. If you're a bit sad like me, I found it fascinating. Um, but the <laughs> gist of it is, is that if there's a line there, it's positive, and it's positive for DA1. That's it. Yeah. Um, cool. And then uh, I think there was, you know, like we, because it was interesting, because we used to, you know, people used to often kind of show you those, or we would do them and be like, it's positive, it's quite weak. And it was almost like we didn't really understand what was going on there. Mm. It might be that actually this is a reason that yeah. it's to do with the amount of antigen that's being expressed. And so 
it wasn't a failure of the system. No. It might actually have been real. Yeah. Which I think is interesting because looking back on all the ones that we would have looked at over the years and said, well, it's weak, but it's positive, yeah. so it's positive, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that's interesting. And again, if people um, are a bit confused by this conversation because we can't just focus on this bit, then, yeah, they can feel free to get in touch and we can help them out with explaining mm. a bit more about it. And the video we... website, I think, has quite a bit on it as well, actually. Yeah. Okay, cool. Great. Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about in the context of uh, red cell transfusions um, was that there are a number of equations that have kind of been suggested. Um, you know, so if you've got a patient in front of you and you're saying, well, how much red cells do I give you? Mm. And then they're saying, and then you're trying to come up with a number. So there are a number of equations that have been suggested. If I remember rightly, um, it's been a long time since I, well, been a while since I read it, but there was a paper in the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care, otherwise known as JVEC. Um, I think it was in the last couple of years, but that's just off the top of my head. Um, that, because I guess we, you know, we, we never used to, I don't know, we didn't really have evidence about how valid or where those equations came from and mm. whether we should or shouldn't be using them and so on. But so I think this paper looked at that, looked at a number of different ones and said, well, there may be a couple that may be the most reliable if you're going to use one. Um, so I guess, could you give us a, a kind of overview of basically, I suppose one of the best ways of asking it is how do we decide? <laughs> It's probably um, the good way of asking yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I think well, there are there are those equations, and there is that paper that you referred to. Um, and what they found, actually, there were two equations that were pretty good. Um, one of the ones was the one that I use if I use an equation, which is the 90 mil times body weight times desired PCV minus actual PCV of the, pa of the recipient over the donor PCV, which is a bit more complex. Or the one which um, I don't use, but actually I don't know why, because it's far more straightforward. And they also found, which was fairly accurate, is one and a half mils times body weight times desired increase in PCV. Um, we don't tend to use those because we tend to just think about units. Mm. So we'll say we'll look at the patient, we'll look at the size of the patient and because we do quite a lot of transfusions, we kind of guesstimate and say, oh, that's probably going to need about, you know, looking at its PCV, looking at um, the size of it, it's probably going to need about one unit or it's probably going to need about half a unit. And probably, actually, we, we barely ever make an animal... Um, get its PCV within the normal range, let alone too high when we transfuse them. Um, but the risk would be more about volume overload, I think, um, than anything else. So because we have to get that transfusion in with, in six hours, four to six hours. So that would be our major concern, actually. Um, but on occasion, I'll use um, one of those equations. But in general... We just kind of eyeball the patient and their PCV. Must say, you saying on occasion you use it. I really, um, <laughs> I don't think I've ever used it. Um, and I, I actually don't sit here and think, you know, I'm rubbish. I should be using it because I think that was a paper. But in some ways, we could critique that paper if we wanted to go and reread it. But I'm mm. a bit like, well. Um, so we do tend to think of multiples of units or, or maybe half Yeah, I mean, unit. the reason when I would use it is when we're actually bleeding an animal with foot on demand, with blood on demand for a fixed, um, with a fixed volume, whereas with dogs, we don't tend to do that. We tend to use our units. So that's why it's not that useful for us. Yeah. Um, whereas if you were actually going to bleed, um, take a set amount from a donor, it might be more useful. But yeah, we just don't tend to do that. Um, for a number of reasons that we won't, we won't get into. But the... the um, I guess the other thing to say is that so you brought up the issue of half units. Mm. And I think the first thing to say is that from previous life, supervising people doing out of hours work in practice, I mm. think one of the things that people need to be clear about is if they're trying to give a transfusion and actually achieve something, mm. that they need to have a sense of how much they need to give, right? Because yeah. I have definitely seen people transfuse, you know, 
one unit to an 80 kilo dog mm. and then be astounded that nothing's really changed yeah. i'm like you wouldn't really expect that to do that much right and obviously yeah. it's so contextual to what's going on with the patient all that kind of stuff um but the other thing is that you know we 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 often or we we well relatively frequently i think encounter patients where we're saying well one unit is way too much for you mm. right we don't really feel very comfortable with throwing half a unit away mm. and so we sort of talk about using half units and do we have stored half units do we mm. get can we get them so what's our situation with half units or smaller units well again um robin taylor um our previous nurse um invented the half unit <laughs> um she just worked out she's like oh look we can play around with the machine and do this so she got um half units and i think pet blood banks sell them as well i think okay. um but um they're just literally half a unit for smaller dogs um yeah. and it's more economical um but also as you say um, making sure we make the most of the donation so you know a a one donation from a dog can even with cells can go to multiple patients because i think we, we'd all be you know we don't like the idea of saying well here's half his unit you have half of it and the other half no, will go in the no, bin, it feels right? awful it's to just, throw it away uh, for so many reasons okay that's great let's um let's move on then and talk about spontaneous bleeding mm-hmm. um and i guess we before we talk about the treatment of said patients, um, we should probably remind the listeners, and, and you get to do it this time, <laughs> about how we have traditionally, and I guess still need to clinically think about what are the mechanisms for spontaneous bleeding um, and you know, what are the possible causes therefore, and therefore how do we think about in terms of approaching to treatment clinically. Okay, so um, we tend to think about um, coagulopathies, so bleeding tendencies in terms of primary and secondary coagulopathies, with primary being affecting um, platelets, so either numbers or function, and secondary affecting the actual clotting factors themselves. Um, And you can sometimes get disease processes which are affecting both so say like angiostrondulus can affect both aspects we should do a podcast on that actually yeah, yeah. that's Coming a soon. good one Coming that's soon, a good actually. one because um, that's just interesting and you're, you're quite hot on that anyway so yeah no that's uh we're, we're booking that one for the future <laughs> i'm just telling telling mr brian the sound man <laughs> all right also awesome. let's get back to what you were saying um but yeah disseminated intravascular coagulation and then there's been recent stuff about acute traumatic coagulopathy and stuff like that i know i know loads of interesting (laughs) stuff but stuff that affects um both aspects but traditionally we divide it into primary and secondary and so sometimes um, disease processes fit very neatly into that and sometimes they span both but it's a really important thing to to get clear in your mind which you think your patient has because we treat them in different ways and before you tell us about that i think the um <clears throat> that's what you've just said has been what we've always taught, mm. right? And it's how we need to still think about things clinically. Mm. Now, you and I will know that there's stuff about how that, that sort of model is a bit simplistic and things don't mm. work in that sort of chronological way in, in uh-huh. the body versus in a test tube. Yeah. And, you know, there's this whole kind of cell-based model of, of uh, hemostasis and all that kind of stuff. Mm which we talk about and the residents have to learn for board exams and, we, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there are there are tests that one can use. That we have one example here called a TEG, and there's the Rotem that other people have. And in human medicine, both of these are more widely available to some people, but not everyone. Hmm. And there's sort of a more holistic way of trying to look at coagulation. All of that said and done, I suppose it brings me back to the question that has that stuff as yet or impacted on anything that we actually do differently clinically and especially anything that people out in practice would actually do differently clinically or is it really just that's really interesting 
But we still need to use our traditional understanding in order to actually do our clinical work. Well, I think you're right. When we're thinking about how coagulation has happens, that's massively um, advanced and changed over the past few decades. But um, actually, if we look at a patient that's presenting with a thrombocytopenia, they present different to a patient that's presenting with a secondary coagulopathy. They just present different, and yes, yep. we treat them in different ways, and I think that's still fairly straightforward. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not too complex. No, because um, it's, kind of, it's, it's a bit of a challenge in a way, because you know, when you know that the, the traditional teaching is being questioned mm. and that teaching is changing in some respects, mm. but you're also cognizant that you know, you're talking about clinical patients and how mm. they present and stuff. It's always a little bit of a challenge as to how, you know, how to teach the stuff in a way I, mm. I find now because I'm sort of like, well, I don't want to just tell you the traditional stuff when we know mm. that there's always conversation about how it's not quite as simple as that. Mm. And at the same time, I also don't want to leave you with the impression that actually we do that much different clinically than we've done before because mm. we don't really, right, bottom mm. line. No, I mean we moment. look at we look at we look at things. Um, yeah, we'll look at animals and we'll we'll use like you say a tag etc. And we might maybe use that to guide our therapy a little bit. But these are the really complex cases in mm. general, yeah. really complex ones. And still, mm. we we are unsure often exactly what it means. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's the other thing, right? And, and, and honest about the fact yeah. that we don't really know. Um, so just to remind people who might have got bored with me rambling about all that stuff. Um, Basically, what we're saying is primary hemostatic disorders relate to platelets. Mm. Either there's not enough of them or they're not working very well. Yep. And part of the reason they may not work very well also is that the blood vessels may be inflamed. Mm-hmm. It's pissed off, my, my language. Um, and therefore, that's important for platelet function, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got the secondary problems, which are related to clotting factors. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. So let's, um, let's take the first bit first and say, well, if I've got a patient in front of me and... Um, I'm, I feel pretty comfortable that my patient is bleeding because of severe thrombocytopenia. So let's just focus on, on the platelet number bit. Um, what can I do about that? Well, you chose the difficult one. <laughs> yeah, let's get, get that out of the way first. <laughs> um, so um, platelets are a bit of a nightmare. And in fact... Um, Part of that is actually because the most common reason for thrombocytopenia in our patients is a mu-mediated thrombocytopenia. Um, and that's really hard to treat because even if you give them platelets they'll destroy those platelets you've transfused them fairly quickly. Mm. So it is really inherently hard to treat. The other side of it that means it's difficult to treat is because um, it's it's hard to get rid hold of those platelets in the first place. So what happens in humans is um, to get enough platelets, um, human donors go in and most platelets actually are now collected through apheresis, which means blood sucked out of the arm by a machine. It takes out the platelets and then transfuses the rest of the blood back into the person. So they just take the platelets mm-hmm. because otherwise they can't get hold of enough platelets per donation. Um, and that's how most platelets are produced now. And you can donate platelets much more frequently than you can donate blood. Um, and so they get hold of those platelets and once they've got them, they agitate them constantly. They keep them at room temperature and they last for five days. Wow. That's it. Wow. So they're a really labile um, product that needs really careful handling. And so you can actually buy fresh platelets. And there are um, dogs in America, they do produce apheresis donation of platelets, which is amazing. Um, they're not available in this country. You can also get um, stored platelets. So you can get um, lyophilized platelets, um, which I don't think actually are currently, currently bought. Bar- 
um, available even in the US or anywhere, but they were in the US for a while and don't think they're available anymore. But they're basically freeze-dried platelets and they can be kept on the shelf. Mm. Or you can get um, cryopreserved platelets um, and they are frozen and they can, again, I think they have a shelf life or freezer life of a couple of years, but again, they're not available. Neither of those products are available in the UK. Cryopreserved and fresh are available in the um, US that I'm aware of at the moment. Um, but you could, because of the way they have to be stored, and because, the, say, the major demand for them would you think would be ITP, and actually they're not that useful for, they're, they're not really produced. Um, so, again, I, we, we because obviously one of the in humans, one of the uses of platelet products is mm. in, in hemorrhage from trauma. Right? Yes. And again, we're not yeah. going to have that. That's a whole other podcast, in yeah. own, right? In a way, about the, the resuscitation of of hemorrhagic hypovolemia from trauma. Um, yeah. But so what we're saying is that if we put aside that potential indication... Or bone marrow disease would be the other one. They use them for a lot in humans, like people with um, horrible leukemias and stuff. Um, they'll, use, they'll use a lot because obviously their lifespan is still okay once they're there. It's just that person isn't producing they're not them. Because they're not being destroyed. Yeah. So we have questions about the true necessity for them. Mm. There's probably some. Yeah. And but also the availability is not something that we can give... Um, because I guess one of the things to be, which we will hope for people to be very clear about after this podcast, if they weren't before, is that giving plasma does not mean you're giving platelets, right? And this no. sort of takes us to the core of the uh, the need for people to understand what they're trying to treat. Yeah, I mean, um, the only way really you can transfuse platelets in this country is to give fresh whole blood. And the platelets will maybe last for up to eight hours um, if they're kept at room temperature. So you'd have to transfuse, take, take a donation and pretty much administer it straight away to have your six hours keeping it at room temperature and then you will get some platelets. Um, and that's the only and way then, you can like really you do said, that. if they've got ITP... They're not going to last Immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, where the immune system is destroying platelets. Yeah. Um, then who knows what happens to those platelets. Yeah. Anyway, interesting. Okay. Um, and then let's move on and talk about the secondary uh, hemostatic problems, so the clotting factor-related issues. Mm. Um, so this is a simpler question, really, but what are our options for giving patients clotting factors yeah much simpler so we've got options so you can give whole blood um fresh whole blood and if your patient is anemic as well say they have rodenticide intoxication and they have bled and they've become anemic and they're also coagulopathic that's probably an ideal fluid um but you, often they haven't maybe bled so that they're that anemic they don't necessarily need the cells, in which case you can give either fresh whole, fresh plasma or fresh frozen plasma to those patients yeah um, and in terms of the things that we sort of kind of went through relatively quickly about the logistical and practical stuff in terms of giving red cell transfusions, um, how much of that stuff actually applies to transfusing either, you know, fresh frozen plasma or stored frozen plasma or fresh plasma? <laughs> um, what, what, what sort of things do we need to think about? If you're there? just thinking about the plasma, um, we don't tend to type our, um, we don't do type-specific plasma administration. So maybe we don't worry so much about typing the recipient before um, administering plasma. So, so actually, on that question, um, I guess the rationales there is we're saying that we've produced this plasma by... See, your page is going off, mm. which we laughed about earlier. <laughs> is that number nine? On the no, you're fine. Okay, fine. Um, we, we, I guess what we're saying is that we've separated out the plasma from the red cells. Mm -hmm. and there, there may still be some red cell antigens in that plasma, mm. but we're not we don't worry that they're actually going to cause a problem to the patient. Right? No, because um, I guess the big... The, 
we think there's a very small, small amount transfused. Yes, I guess they could develop antibodies against them, but there's no cells that are being transfused that they're going to destroy. Mm. Um, and um, the, we, do we still recommend at least taking blood from the recipient before giving them the plasma, or are we like, phased about that the, as well? The num- amount of cells that are going to be in there are going to be so minuscule that I really don't think it would affect affect a blood type. subsequently. Mm. Um, Okay, fine. And then in terms of filter, no filter? We don't tend to use a filter, no. in terms of how much? Um, So, well, traditionally, if you said a coagulopathy, we tend to say the guesstimate is about 20 mil per kilo to be effective um, of plasma. Okay, awesome. Um, So that's great. Your page has just gone off, and we're nearly at the end, which is cool. Um, The the last thing I wanted to ask you was, um, again, not you don't necessarily have to divulge specifically how much we charge, but Mm. just out of interest, um, how much does it cost in the United Kingdom at the moment to, say, give a cat a whole blood transfusion and to give a dog, you know, either a unit of red cells or a unit of plasma? What are the kind of rough numbers that people need to have in their minds? I, I could tell you our prices. I think that's probably, <laughs> probably the easiest place to, to, to start. And I can give you um, a unit of red cells for a dog is approximately £200. A unit of blood for a cat um, is approximately 300 And that's because of the increased... Um, we, we, we don't make money on our... Um, red cell transfusions um, and it's all been priced out in terms of nursing time, patient care time, patient care assistant time and the time of administering the transfusion and so, um, and the nursing care while watching that, etc, etc so that's actually, it costs more for a cat and that's because of doing it on... So that 200 or 300 is for everything? For the... Just for the bag and then... And the administration Right, Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Yeah. I mean I think it's... um, like I say, we don't want to make a profit on it, mm. so it's all um, priced out very carefully. And so I guess people that are buying blood from the pet blood bank, mm. I guess it's sort of up to them to end up deciding to charge whatever it is. They no, they ask them not to make a profit on it. Okay. They ask because they're a charity. They ask them not to make. I mean, they obviously can't enforce that, but given that they are not making a profit on it, I think that's fair enough to say, please so they pass ask this on to give cast, that to the patient at, at the cost. price at which they bought it. Yes. Okay. That's yeah, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and I think that's. Um, I think that's really quite important because obviously these owners are out of the goodness of their heart, and they're actually when you look at it, spending money. They're paying petrol to yeah. bring their animal yeah. into us, etc. Yeah. So I think it'd be really wrong if we were making money off their backs. Uh, you know, on on many other levels as well, but just on that basic point you know we're not paying these people yeah fantastic um so as i said obviously there's a lot of stuff that we could, we could talk about mm. um and i'm sure we'll come back and do do other bits in, in more detail later on but before we ended was there anything one or two burning things that you had to say or do you think that like, we kind of covered the most important stuff for now I think, as always, Shailene, you've been incredibly thorough. Um, but, um, but no, the only thing I'd like to say actually is if anyone does live locally and yeah, um, they have. Kind of plug the donors. They have a dog or a cat that they think might be a suitable donor to say between one and eight years old, um, over 25 kilos for dogs, over five kilos for a cat, lovely temperament, and never been abroad, um, and never had a donation themselves actually as well, then we'd love to hear from you and. Um, there's stuff on the website about that, um, or you can email me directly at khum, H-U-M for mother, M for mother, at rvc.ac.uk. Cool. And, um, again, I know that certainly a number of our undergrad students definitely listen to these podcasts. Uh-huh. And, and often, and we do use, we've had undergrad student pets as donors, right? Yes, so, yeah, you know, definitely. So, yes, yeah, so absolutely. I mean, and um, if people 
if people forget your email address, I'm just about to read out ways of contacting me anyway, and oh, they lovely. can get through to you from me. Um, <laughs> so excellent. So thank you very much. And to the listeners, as always, then, do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback in the usual ways. Um, and also let me know if there are any kind of clinical topics you would really like a podcast on. So you can email me directly at sjassani at rbc.ac.uk. If you go at the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page, there is a photo album that contains information um, about the podcast and links to them. And you can get on the Twitter and tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod. And until next time then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.